to put yourself in another man's sandals for a few minutes. And that man was a, a Jewish fisherman named Simon Peter. We all knew him well from uh, the gospel accounts and from his letter, First uh, and Second Peter. We know him mostly as Peter, not Simon Peter. But before Peter met Jesus Christ, his understanding about the nature of leadership and submission was probably uh, no different than anyone else's who was in his station in life in the Roman Empire. He was pretty much toward the low end of the food chain as a, as a fisherman. And he uh, certainly saw the gap between those who ruled and those who served under them as a very wide chasm. You and I don't really have a reference point for knowing how it feels to be part of a nation that is enslaved to another nation. In spite of all the corruption that exists within our culture, and within our government in America, the fact is you and I live in a country in which those who rule are supposed to see themselves as servants of those over whom they rule. Now, granted, we don't see that philosophy of government played out quite as it should be these days, but my point is that that approach to governing is exceedingly rare in the history of men and nations. And if you were a Jew in Peter's day, you would be painfully aware that your people, the Jews, having come out of 70 years of exile in Babylon as conquered slaves, were to spend the next several hundred years subservient to a a long line of Gentile kings foreign kings who knew and cared little or nothing about your traditions, your beliefs, your way of life. Kings who definitely knew nothing about any kind of bill of rights that laid out their obligations to you. They saw you as one who was obligated to them as a conquered subject. Now, as you mentally put yourself for a moment in that same circumstance in which Peter found himself, imagine then that one day a miracle-working teacher showed up and claimed to be God's anointed Messiah, the king in the line of the son, uh, the king in the line of David, who would usher in God's own kingdom on earth. And as you watched and, and observed the authority with which this man taught. As you watched him heal and do amazing things like heal a man who had been lame from birth so that he jumped up and was jumping and leaping and and shouting for joy. Raising a man from the grave who had been dead for four days. You became convinced that this Jesus was exactly who he claimed to be. The very Son of God sent from the Father. If you were Peter, based on everything that you had ever known about the nature of leadership and submission, how would it make you feel then if that man knelt down and began washing your feet? And by the way, if we don't think very highly of getting up close and personal with another person's feet, you can multiply that by about ten times, and then you might come close 
to the level of offense that was associated with touching another person's feet in Peter's culture. In fact, I think it's no coincidence that in in John chapter 1, John the Baptist referred to Jesus as the one who comes after me, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. That was a vivid image that everyone in John's hearing would have understood. See, the honor due to this king, John was saying, would be so great that a man like John would be unqualified to render even the lowliest act of service to him. And based on the narrative that followed then in John chapter 1, I think it's safe to say that Peter heard about that declaration of John the Baptist concerning the Messiah because the next day after John the Baptist said those words and after Jesus approached him and he baptized him, Andrew, who had been following John the Baptist, came to his brother Peter and said, Peter, we have found the Messiah. It's no wonder at all that Peter was upset and confused then when Jesus, just before he went to his death, began to wash his disciples' feet. This didn't look anything like any form of headship or leadership to which Peter had ever been exposed. And long before that gathering in the upper room, Peter had come to acknowledge Jesus not only as a king, but as the Christ, the Son of the living God, Matthew 16, verse 16. This was the King of kings. This was the one to whom the prophet said every other king over in all the earth would bow down. How could the promised Son of David and Son of God wash men's feet? See, Jesus was very intentionally turning upside down every expectation that his disciples had about how leadership works. And what Peter and the other disciples no doubt found most unsettling about all this is what it implied for them. Some from this same group of disciples had previously argued among themselves about Who would be in the places of greatest authority when Jesus came into his kingdom? In Matthew 20, the mother of James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to Jesus and asked him to command that her two sons would sit at his right hand and at his left hand when his kingdom was was set up. But now... As he was preparing for his own execution, Jesus performed one of the lowliest acts of service that his disciples could imagine right before their eyes and at their feet. They had been just fine with the thought of being in the inner circle of Jesus, the conquering king. Wouldn't that be wonderful to to reign at his side? And that was apparently exactly what they thought they had signed on for. But being part of the inner circle of Jesus, the chief foot washer, was another thing altogether. And so Peter, who always managed to blurt out what everyone else was thinking, (laughs) said, in effect, to Jesus, not on your life, Lord. You will never wash my feet. Jesus said to him, if I do not wash you, you will have no part with me. And if that act of humility on the part of their master gave the disciples heartburn, what do you suppose was going through their minds a couple of days later 
when they watched as Jesus, the Messiah, the King of Kings, was arrested and mocked and spit upon and scourged and nailed to a cross and put on public display as one who was cursed of men and cursed of God. Who would want to follow a leader like that? Jesus' answer, of course, is everyone who wishes to lay hold of real life. In that upper room, when Jesus washed his disciples' feet, he did not in any way abdicate his position as the Son of God and as the King of Kings. He did not in any way diminish his absolute authority over men and over all creation. The authority that he had demonstrated over and over and over, not merely with words, but with his actions. He did not in any way compromise God's command to all men to worship him as God's anointed king above all kings. How can both of those things be true? But on that day, and much more just a day or so later when he went to the cross, Jesus revolutionized his disciples' understanding about the nature of leadership along with many other things in a way that, uh, that would change them and that should change us forever. And this morning, what we're going to focus on is that radical redefinition of the nature of leadership. And we're going to focus on it uh, in terms of the impact that it has on us as men in our marriages and in leading within the body of Christ. Not just leading women, but also leading in relationships that involve men uh, in authority over men. Now our focus this hour is not primarily on marriage. It's on how we men are to understand and to exercise our God-assigned task of headship in the context of the church, the body of Christ. That's what this series is intended to be about. But God's instructions regarding the husband's headship and marriage derive from, they flow from everything that he said, or in marriage, flows from the the Godhead himself, and they proceed as the basis for everything that we are to do in the context of leadership in the church. Marriage was the first human context in which headship and submission were played out between the image-bearers. So we're going to look at both of those contexts. And, the, and it's interesting in the passages that, uh, that speak about these things, especially in Paul's epistles, they're kind of intertwined. There's not a real sharp distinction between instructions to men as leaders in marriage and women uh, in submitting to that headship when, as compared with the instructions that are given to us in the context of the church. In Ephesians chapter 5, Paul says first to wives, he says, Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. And he says, For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the Savior of the body. Now that same hierarchy applies both in marriage and in the church. In 1 Corinthians 11, verses 10, uh, that should be 11, 3, says, but I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man. The man is the head of the woman. And then it jumps back up to the top. God is the head of Christ. And so we looked at this org chart last week, very simple org chart. 
God the Father is head over the Son, the Son is head over the man, and the man is head over the woman. That's very same principle of headship and submission that applies between a husband and a wife or between men and women in the body of Christ also applies between men of different roles and assignments from God within the body of Christ. So the chart can expand to look sort of like that. The 12 men whose feet Jesus washed in John 13 were going to be assigned great authority and great responsibility over other men and women as our Lord worked mightily through them to establish His church in the first generation of that church. In every role that God has assigned to men and to women, the principles of leadership and submission that govern our relationships with one another derive not from anything that we see in the behavior of men. They derive from the nature of God, from the relationships that exist within the Trinity, as we discussed in the first part of this series. And everything that we know about them, we know because God has told us. We don't find it out from any other source. In fact, it just completely overturns what we find in other sources uh, that, that might want to tell us how leadership is supposed to work. So how do we know? How is it that leadership is supposed to work? Well, God has given us the perfect answer to that question, and that answer, of course, is a person. The one and only reference point that we need in order to rightly and fully understand how leaders are supposed to lead and how followers are supposed to follow is Jesus, because he did both of those things perfectly. He's the one who submit who submits perfectly to the headship of his Father, and who leads perfectly as the head over every man and every woman and over his church, the body of Christ. So if we want to know how to do it, we look at him. What specifically do we learn about the nature of headship and leadership from his perfect example? Well, first, we learn that we lead by serving because he led by serving. Now, for many of you, this is old hat, but I'm going to cover it anyway because it's critically important and we need to be reminded. John 13, verse 12, picks up the narrative after Jesus finished washing the disciples' feet. And he couldn't be any clearer about the point of his object lesson. It says, and so, here's the so what, When he had washed their feet and taken his garments and reclined at the table again, he said to them, Do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and when you do, you've got it right. For so I am. If I then, the Lord and teacher, washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I gave you an example that you should also do as I did to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master, neither is one who is sent greater than the one who sent him. Jesus was sent by his Father, and he was sending those twelve men. If you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. Now that's pretty straightforward. Our assignment is to serve one another, and the basis of that assignment 
is that our master served us. The slave is not greater than his master. In Matthew 20, mentioned this earlier, the mother of James and John came to Jesus and, and asked him to command that her two sons would sit at his right and left hands when he came into his kingdom. <laughs> and he said, do you know what you're asking? Are you able to drink the cup that I'm about to drink? And they said to him, James and John said, yeah, we're able. <laughs> and he said to them, my cup you shall drink. But to sit on my right and my left, this is not mine to give. It is for those to whom it has been prepared by my Father. See, he knew all about submission. And he knew all about leadership. And they didn't. <laughs> they were still off in the ozone. They were still looking at the world's model. Well, he's going to straighten them out. Uh, interestingly, the next verse says, Hearing this, the ten ben- became indignant with the two brothers. <laughs> you know, I can see why that would happen. In verses 25 to 28, Jesus gave the disciples what is perhaps the most pointed and concise lesson on godly leadership that you'll find anywhere. And he broke it down into three pieces. Leadership done wrong, leadership done right, and the basis for leadership done right. He said, first, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great men exercise authority over them. And then he said, it is not so among you. They have it wrong. Among you, whoever wishes to become great shall be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave. And then he says, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Just as he would do later when he washed the disciples' feet, he turned the disciples' assumptions about leadership upside down. And he told them that the only reference point they had ever known for how leadership was to be done was completely incorrect. The rulers of the Gentiles lord it over their subjects. And that term uh, is used in, I, I don't have the reference written down, you can look it up. There's a passage that talks about Jesus controlling demons and causing them to go out from a person who was controlled by those demons. And he tossed them out. That's lording it over. That's the, that's the connotation of lording it over. It is you take control and you make that other person do what you intend for them to do. But leadership in God's hierarchy doesn't work that way. It is not self-serving. It is not self-exalting. Leadership on God's terms is service to those whom you are called to lead. It is their well-being that is the focus of your attention and effort as a leader, not your well-being. We lead by serving because Jesus led by serving. And we lead by loving because Jesus led by loving. In Ephesians 5, verses 25 to 27... Paul said, Husbands, love your wives. And then we see the just as again clause. That clause shows up over and over and over. Just as Christ. Just as the Son of Man. Just as Jesus. 
you can look at any of these passages that tell us how we are to lead and how we are to submit. And Christ is always the example. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. And then in Ephesians 5, 28 through 30, a little further down, it says, So, just as, and so, just as Jesus did, so husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church because we are members of his body. There is always and only one reference point. Our loving leadership has a goal because his does. Ephesians 5, that same passage we were just looking at, look at these three that statements. Verse 25 says, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and blameless. Christ's love for his church is goal-oriented. It's purposeful. It's not merely a tender affection for his bride. It is certainly that. Don't ever let anyone tell you that there's no emotion in biblical love. Jesus had a tender affection and has a tender affection for his bride. But the love of Christ that has been poured out within our hearts to overflow toward others is love with a clear and focused purpose. Godly love works even at the expense of its own well-being with the purpose of securing the well-being of the one who is loved. And that's well-being as God defines it. And there's the definition of it right there. The goal of our loving service toward our wives and toward all who are part of his wife, his bride, is their sanctification. It is their practical holiness. The goal of our loving service is to move our wives and our brothers and our sisters toward Christ until they are presented spotless and blameless in His presence. That's not going to be finished until the day we all stand spotless and blameless in His presence. So it's a, it is a daily assignment. It is an ongoing assignment. And it's a beautiful and blessed assignment. We cannot forget the purpose of our love and our service toward each other. As soon as we do, we reduce love to charity. And you know what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 13 about charity? He said, if I have all charity, if I sell all my possessions and give them all away but do not have love, I'm nullified, I'm canceled out, I'm worthless. We tend to mix charity up with godly love, and the difference is the purpose. One fulfills temporal needs, and the other is focused like a laser beam on sanctification and on the eternal need of the soul of the redeemed of God, which is to be conformed to Christ, to find His and her only life 
in Christ. That's what godly love does. What does it look like when we lead by loving and serving the way Jesus taught us to lead? Instead of leading the world's way. Instead of leading our way. First, in our marriages, husbands, do you treat your wife as your maid or as your beloved and as God's beloved? The question here is not, do you allow your wife to serve you? If you don't allow your wife to serve you, then she's not going to be able to carry out her role that God has assigned to her before God, before Him. The question is, do you treat your wife as your servant, or do you treat her as a fellow heir of the grace of life, as Peter says in 1 Peter 3, 7? Do you treat your wife as a daughter of the living God who has an equal share with you in the inheritance that belongs to Jesus Christ. Romans 8, verses 16 and 17 tells us that we are heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, and that applies to every redeemed child of God, male or female. How do you view your assignment under God with regard to your wife? Do you see her merely as someone who is useful to facilitate your usefulness to God? Or do you see your wife's well-being and the quality of her relationship with God as the single most sacred assignment that God has given to you in all of your relationships with other human beings? If that's not how you see his assignment to you with regard to your wife, go back and read Ephesians 5 starting at verse 25, and read it over and over and over again until you get it. It's not unclear. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. God's command to your wife is to willingly, joyfully, and respectfully submit to your headship as an outworking of her submission to Christ's headship and to do so without any fear because she trusts not in you, but in God. But his command to you, husbands, is not to get her to do that. Your task is not to get your wife to submit to God the way God commands her to. That's God's task. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. So many marriages have been shipwrecked because the husband makes it his assignment to get his wife to do what God wants her to do. And the wife makes it her assignment to get her husband to do what God wants him to do. And neither of them pays sufficient attention to what God wants him and her to do. That happens all the time. And every single time it happens, every single time in marriage, I turn my attention to my wife's assignment instead of mine before God. I mess things up. And if you can get two people to focus individually on their assignments from God, things work out amazingly well. Husbands, your assignment in your marriage is to lay down your life for your bride just as Jesus laid down his life for his bride, his church. And again, if you don't understand how that works, how to do that in practice, there's only one thing you need to do to get clarification. And that's to look longer and harder at what Jesus did for you at the cross and at everything that he did on the way to the cross. 
It is amazing uh, to me how quickly we let ourselves be turned away from such a clear and pure and uncompromising assignment. And Satan loves it when we do that. It's amazing how quickly some husbands violate this assignment by turning to one of two ugly distortions of godly headship. Either they turn into tyrants who treat their wives like slaves, or else they abdicate their God-ordained headship in their marriages and in their households under the guise of keeping the assignment to love their wives. Acting as a bully and a dictator in your household in an effort to secure your own pathetic imitation of well-being is a grievous insult to the one who laid down his life to give you life. The one who owed you nothing but set aside his glory to give you everything. But the other extreme is equally insulting to Christ. Laying down your life for your wife as Christ laid down his life for you does not mean that you follow her lead. That's how things got so messed up in the first place. Consider again our perfect example. Jesus denied himself and he humbled himself to the point of death on a cross to redeem us, to make us his bride, to make us his inheritance, to make us a people for God's own possession and to set us apart unto God as holy. And he did all of that without ever following any lead except his father's. Jesus didn't follow our lead to save us. And the man of God will pursue that same, that same well-being for his wife without ever following anyone's lead except Christ's. Now, I know you want me to give you specific examples of how that looks and works out in your situation. And I could pass the mic around this morning and we could probably come up with good examples all day long. But you know what? none of them would be even remotely as valuable to you as the one that God already gave you and the one that he calls you over and over and over in these passages to pay attention to. And that example is Jesus Christ. God already demonstrated what loving leadership looks like in living color. And the primary color was red. The love of Jesus was purposeful. It was unwavering. It gave no thought to self. Jesus didn't protect his time. He didn't protect his leisure. He didn't make his faithful love contingent on our response. When even his closest followers, his disciples, abandoned him, he did not waver from carrying out the greatest act of love, the greatest work of service, and the greatest example of leadership that any of us will ever behold. I'll say it again. If you're having trouble figuring out how the serving and sacrificial love of Jesus Christ translate to your situation, the solution is to look longer and harder at his example. You won't find a better one. Read the Gospels. You can even read the Old Testament. We looked at, Leonard mentioned Isaiah 42 and Isaiah 48 and Isaiah 52 and 53. There's a great example of loving, serving leadership very purposeful. Look at the cross and look at the whole life of Jesus that led up to the cross. Look at what Jesus did in Mark 6 when he and his disciples were exhausted and hadn't even, according to the passage, had time to eat. They had been missing meals. And Jesus said to his disciples, look, here's a nice, lonely, quiet place. Let's go aside there. And they 
apparently, you know, came over a hill, and guess what? There's 5,000 people there waiting who had followed them. You think that surprised Jesus? You think his time and his schedule mattered to him? No. The only schedule he cared anything about was his father's. Look at how Jesus persevered with, with his disciples when time after time he had to point out to them the littleness of their faith. Don't try to write these down, but just to give you a, a little glimpse of how often that comes up. Matthew eight twenty six, Matthew fourteen thirty one, Matthew sixteen, twenty one to twenty three, seventeen verses fourteen to twenty, Mark six fifty two, Mark nine nineteen, John thirteen but verses five through eleven. Jesus telling the disciples their faith is small and exhorting them because it's so small. Did he ever stop? loving them and serving them and preparing them and leading them? No. Not for a minute. As John 13 begins the narrative of Jesus last sitting together with his beloved disciples in that upper room in Jerusalem that last Passover just before he went to the cross Verse 1 says, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, that he should depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. He loved them to the end. Is that how faithfully and relentlessly you love your wife? Is that how faithfully and relentlessly you love the bride of Christ? Men, uh, we need to think about we need to spend some time pondering this and praying about this and asking God to test us, to try us and know our anxious thoughts, to see if there be any hurtful way in us and to lead us in his everlasting way. If we don't do our homework, we're going to do a crummy job of both of God's assignments to us when, with regard to leadership. We're going to do a crummy job of leading in our households and in our marriages, and we're going to do a crummy job of leading in His church. The command to us to fix our eyes on Jesus is a command that, that demands our full-time attention because the distractions are all over the place. This is a discipline we cannot take lightly because far too much is at stake. The most important thing, men and women, that we do every single day to keep our eyes in the right place is to keep our minds saturated with the Word of God. I want to touch on one final matter, and that is submitting to one another. Ephesians 5, 5 and 6 talk a lot about submission. Ephesians 5, verses 15 to 22 talk about being filled with the Spirit and about edifying one another when we come together with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. And then it says, verse 21, and be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. And interestingly, in the next verse that starts the passage we're all familiar with about wives and husbands, where it says, wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord, the verb is missing. The verb is supplied by the verse before it. Be subject comes from verse 21, and the text in that verse says be subject to one another in the fear of Christ 
I mentioned last week that the word translated submit to or be subject to always refers to a unilateral submission of one person to another. It goes in one direction. In the Bible, you never, you never see a king commanded to submit to his subjects. You never see a husband commanded to submit to his wife. Again, that's where the problem started. But in Ephesians 5.21, we find a very unexpected use of the imperative submit to or be subject to. Paul says be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Now, I'm going against conventional wisdom on this point, so you're welcome to take this or leave it, but I'm going to give you my thoughts. In Paul's letters and in many other non-Pauline passages, the word, the Greek word that's translated one another is used with just as consistent a meaning as that imperative that means to be subjected to be subject to but in the many passages that tell us how we are to treat one another the commanded action is always bilateral it always works in both directions so here's the dilemma if submission is always in one direction how can we com- be commanded to submit to one another Well, the way many commentators resolve that apparent contradiction is by saying that the phrase be subject to one another in verse 21 is just an introductory statement that is then explained or fleshed out in the very specific relationships that follow, which are all unilateral. And so wives are to be subject to their husbands, children are to obey their parents, and slaves are to submit to their masters. But it seems to me like that approach to explaining Paul's command in Ephesians 5.21 gives appropriate weight to one very consistently used term but inappropriate weight to another very consistently used term. It rightly handles the nature of submission in the Bible and I don't think it quite adequately handles the nature of all the commands about what we do toward one another. In 1 Peter 5... Verses 5 through 7, it says, You younger men likewise be subject to your elders. And I'm going to do a separate discussion about that one. I don't know if it'll be next time. But at some point, we'll talk about elders and the body. I was going to put that in this message. There simply isn't time. But look at the rest of this. All of you, all of you, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. Does that sound unilateral? For God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that He may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your anxiety on Him, because He cares for you. Here's how I understand this. Submission is always one direction. One another is always two directions. So how do you submit to one another? I submit to you without condition, and you submit to me without condition. In other words... It's not a quid pro quo. It's not me saying to you, Bob, I will put your well-being ahead of mine if you put my well-being ahead of yours. It's not, in that sense, bilateral. It is my, my commitment to submit my preference and my priority and my well-being to yours is one direction. And when everybody does it, things work out beautifully. It goes back to that exact same principle I was talking about with regard to marriage. If I accept God's assignment 
to submit to my brother and my sister, to set aside my interests and any concern over my well-being so that I can pursue with all my heart their well-being, that's my assignment. I don't have to worry about what they do. And when the body does that in all directions, it is a beautiful thing. Does that make sense? See, I think there's a reason in Ephesians 5.21 that Paul uses those two terms the way he does. I think it's unexpected, and I think it is actually a very powerful concept when we lay hold of it. And I think if we do, it fixes a whole lot of what's wrong in our relationships with each other because we focus on our own task under God. The reason that, uh, that we don't have to worry about our well-being is not because God thinks that that shouldn't matter to us. It's because God has made it infinitely clear that he has that covered. Well, then why doesn't he have the other guy's well-being covered? That's called agency. God doesn't need you to take care of your brother or your sister or your wife, but he very much intends to use you as his instrument to take care of that person's well-being. Your well-being, he's got instruments that he has already set aside to take care of that. Be his agent. Be yielded to him without fear. Without fear. Because he's got you covered. When we do that in our marriages, when we do that in our church, things are radically different than the way the world is used to them being Things are radically different than the way they are in many professing Christian homes and churches. So let's do this God's way. Loving Father, I pray that this whole series would be uh, just yielded up to you. I'm uh, inadequate, you know that, but you tell us that, that that's the case. Our adequacy is from you. Lord, you know I don't feel good this morning, but <laughs> but all of this all of this is... Uh, is founded in your word. And we just pray that you would draw our attention to that, that we would all take the time to prayerfully look at these things, not just today or this week. Father, this is, we recognize this is supremely important to you, that we get this whole concept of headship and submission. Thank you, Lord, for all that you've been showing us in these passages, we pray. We pray that you would work by, the, by your spirit and your word to conform us to your will. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.